On this episode of Engineer Your Career, we're learning about the paper products industry with Maria Molmans. Maria works for Georgia Pacific and has held a number of roles ranging from research and development to capital project management to manufacturing line engineering. She has bachelor's degrees in biomedical and mechanical engineering from Michigan Tech and has a lot of insight into the pros and cons of a biomedical engineering degree and the impacts it has on getting a job. Maria has been proactive in gaining the experience she needs to grow in her career, and we talked about the importance of finding the gaps in your knowledge and taking the initiative to fill them. Welcome, Maria, TYC. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Engineer Your Career. I'm Brennan Timrak, and Troy is still with me, still hanging in there. Thanks for having me again, Brennan, as always. You know, middle of winter, you haven't gone anywhere because mm-hmm. you can't. It's true. It's true. But it's a new year, man. I'm excited for a new year. A lot of possibilities. Always At the new year, I always like to kind of do a little reflection. Now, some people recommend this, but this idea of like looking at the new year, what are the goals? I'm not as like hard on tracking those goals. Like every goal, realistically, yeah, you should track to it. I don't. I do what probably most goal planners do and they just come up with goals and never look at them again. So yeah, doing a little bit of that, thinking about the future, maybe finishing my PhD this year. That sounds like a career goal right there. That sounds uh, like career, yeah. which is what we're here to talk about. Yeah. That's true. That's true. So yeah. So speaking of other career goals, uh, Maria is on the show today. We're really glad to have her. Um, another Michigan Tech alum for, uh, as we continue to have. So that, that's really great. Um, so Maria, welcome to the show. Um, thank you for being here. We really appreciate it. I think as we always do to get started, we'll ha- kind of have you work through your origin story. Can you kind of, I guess, give us a little bit of background on you and, and how you got to where you are today? Yeah. Thanks guys for having me. So I guess to start it all off, engineering kind of was one of those careers that I kind of fell into at a very young age. Uh, my dad was an engineer, so I kind of always grew up with the, uh, I want to be an engineer in the in the back of my mind because I loved when he brought, so he's an architectural engineer, so he would bring the massive layout drawings home, and that's what we used to color on, which was really, really cool because I learned how to read a drawing at a very young age, like doors and how things work and layouts. So um, moving on through through school, I always, you know, kind of excelled through math and science, which most engineers tend to do. And by the end of high school, I had it narrowed down to MSOE, which is the Milwaukee School of Engineering at Michigan Tech. And Michigan Tech always had kind of a, a place in my heart because my mom's from the area. And my grandfather was a physics teacher, or professor, I should say, at Michigan Tech, which is pretty cool. So I had family in the area and we grew up going to the hockey games. So it was always like number one on my list. And yeah, started um, in 2010 and started initially in uh, biomedical engineering. And one of the things that led to a very big career change right off the bat is I went to the uh, career fair my freshman year, the first semester, and started talking to all those biomedical companies that are there. And one of the first things that they said, because I asked, well, I want to get an internship, you know, in a year or two, what are you looking for? And the first thing they said was for biomedical, you need to have a focus. Because one of the things for biomedical is you kind of get a sampling of all the engineering degrees, but then there's the focus in biology. So you get a sampling of mechanical, you get a sampling of electrical, and you get a sampling of material. So pick one and kind of kind of make it your your specialty and that's when I went to the career counselor at the time and was like well what would it take to get a mechanical because that was what I like to do I like the mechanics of stuff electrical seemed like voodoo magic still seems like voodoo magic to this day (laughs) never understand it um but would love to learn more but um ended up adding the second degree to, to my coursework and um, it ended up only taking an extra year in, in terms of graduating and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, so then I double majored in biomedical and mechanical and got my first internship at Kimberly Clark. I think it was my second year there, and it was in manufacturing at their Beach Island facility, which doesn't have a beach, isn't an island. And it's in the south, so I mean, it had the warm temperatures going for it. But um, other than that, it, it was spelled beach with two e's, so I really should have known it wasn't going to be tropical. But it kind of opened my eyes to what 
uh, manufacturing was because I primarily wanted to do, you know, prosthetics and, and things like that coming from the bio, from the biomedical side. Yeah, I guess, can you talk a little bit about that? Like, so when you had to pick the initial degree, what, what were you thinking of with bio? How did you know, did you take biology in high school and that you were kind of thinking that or how, because it seemed like you, you, I mean, you kept biology, you double majored in it. So you still had this pull towards it. Um, where do you think that kind of came from internally? So the, the biomedical aspect kind of came from, you know, wanting to either do prosthetics or wanting to do like sports equipment, like safety sports equipment. So I, I grew up in sports. I, I was a hockey player for 15 years. I did, I was like a three season sports person. So, you know, optimizing and designing sports equipment just sounded like super cool. And then actually I went to the women in engineering camp when I was 15 at Michigan Tech to like sample all of them. And the presentation for biomedical basically sold me on the fact that you get to test all of these other, you know, you, you get the sampling. So you know a little bit about everything and then a lot about biology. And it's actually pretty entertaining. I'm not good with medical stuff, like at all. I remember being in my biomechanics class and they flashed a slide up of a dissected kneecap and I almost passed out. So, <laughs> and my <laughs> anatomy lab wasn't any better. So like the medical aspect of the biomedical um, really couldn't be like the true medical that, you know, most of the other people were going for. So, I mean, I always knew I wanted to be mechanical. So that's kind of where that, that aspect came from. But yeah, I mean, I, I enjoy the, the biomedical aspects and it just right now it, it makes me really good at ergonomics for the manufacturing setting and knowing you know, hey, this load is not going to be good to lift when it's sitting, you know, at a certain height. So among the other your peers there when you were getting your biomedical degree was mechanical, like the most common sort of sub area that they were focusing in? Or was it kind of a wide range? Did you notice anything in terms of industry as a whole, what what other students were, were kind of looking for tended to go towards mechanical or were they pretty well split? So I think they tended to, like at the time when I was at, when I was there, the mechanical and the biomedical degrees had just enough credits to where you could get both degrees, but it was the minimal amount of credits to get both degrees. So you only had to take a certain level of classes in order to get both. Whereas electrical, there's a bigger dif difference in, in those courses and the credits and stuff like that. So it kind of, and, and materials, I would say. So it kind of deterred people because you would have to be in school longer, take a higher credit load or however you wanted to manage it. So a lot of people did the mechanical, but I would say, you know, when I was graduating, half of my graduating class had that second degree in biomedical. So pretty a pretty common thing for people to be to be looking for. If you're thinking biomedical, also be thinking maybe there's there might be a little more extra coursework to add to this to make it sort of fully functioning that that something might some company might really want to see stand out. Yeah. And well, I mean, we talked about it in episode 19 with Marissa. We're another biomed. She does um, safety for General Motors. And she talked about this, too, this idea of if you get a biomedical degree, you kind of have to be strategic about how you market it, too, in terms of a lot of people, it is a great general degree, but for some reason, companies take that weirdly. They don't necessarily have a box for that. I, I don't know. And so especially recruiters who don't, who don't understand the technical differences, they may say, okay, we have this list of degrees to get, and maybe biomed isn't on that, even though it has the skill set to achieve the job. And so um, if you're looking for more elaboration on this, I would definitely recommend episode 19 to those folks listening. Cause it, it, it seems like, um, and Maria, you're, you're emphasizing this again, that you, you, you kind of have to think about how you how you market the degree. Yeah. I mean, one of the companies that freshman year worded it very bluntly and said, biomedicals are a jack of all trade, but not solid. If you have that one degree, you're not solid in any of the engineering disciplines. And the other blunt thing that they said was, you can teach a mechanical engineer biology, but you, if the biomedical engineer doesn't have like the focus in engineering. It's harder to teach that. Hmm. That seems so counterintuitive to me. Like I hear this yeah. for me as an engineer now, like all of my problems are multidisciplinary. Like I, you know, I'm, I'm in advanced levels of research areas and all, none of my problems are just mechanical engineering. They're for sure a big mix of mechanical and electrical right now. And so 
it it's really counterintuitive to me because I mean also we've talked about how an engineer engineering degree teaches you critical thinking and how to learn. And so it seems like if you come out of a with a degree that's that's broad that teaches you how to critically think and learn, like that seems like a great engineering education. And so there's a disconnect currently to me in this thought. Yeah, I think it's the depth though, like mm-hmm. the depth of of the knowledge that you're getting. Sure. So like sure. when when I was going for biomedical and if I wanted to focus in mechanical, I mean you weren't required to take dynamics. For, for a biomedical and as a mechanical engineer, dynamics is one of the, the biggest classes you're going to pull on. Sure. So, I mean, you get statics, which is really good and yeah. things like that, but I think that's, that's just the example. And I don't want to yeah. be negative oh. about the oh, biomedical sure. experience because right. I mean, the biomedical experience, I, I was able to get research lab experience mm-hmm. at my time at tech. And I, I find that to be very valuable because, you know, going into an R and D, position later after like right after college i mean that gave the foundation of you know research right yeah i know and i think i mean yeah I, we definitely don't want to be negative enough i, I think really uh, from from my perspective i just want to I'm, I'm trying to like understand the situation to kind of help empower those who want to do biomed to be able to do biomed but understand kind of the game they have to play in order for people yeah. to understand it correctly because it seems it seems misunderstood, I guess, honestly, you know, I guess in terms yeah. of how I think about it. I mean, yeah, it's not mechanical engineering, but it's not trying to be. I think, as I remember from Marissa, it's trying to be the jack of all trades. And sometimes that's good. There's definitely some jobs that need that. They need a jack of all trades that can learn. I mean, you, I, I could argue there's so many mechanical engineering type jobs that are that, where they don't use anything of their degree. They are just a jack of all trades that can learn. And so... So anyways, there's, I think there's a disconnect there. And I think for those listening that are interested in it, um, this conversation helps to understand that um, before you get into it so that, yeah, you're not a third year biomedical engineer who didn't necessarily realize it ahead of time. Or if you're someone who wants to be a jack of all trades, but thinks they have to go into a specific engineering discipline where maybe biomed might make more sense. So I think point really well taken, and I'm glad that we're able to continue to elaborate on it because I think it is um, a very interesting thing about, about the field. So. Um, so you're in Beach Island, if I remember correctly. Yeah, second year, Beach Island. And I did a nine-month co-op there. So, I mean, you really get into the weeds with that and have some pretty in-depth projects. Um, so I I got my feet wet, I would say, in SolidWorks at that time and doing a lot of modeling and drafting and then implementation, which I really liked. Like, you get to see the final end product working in the machine, which is always very rewarding. Um, so I guess that's where, you know, I was like, oh, manufacturing, because my general perspective was like manufacturing is like dingy and dirty. And it's not like, you know, it's, it's, it's not like the dream job that, you know, you think of when, you know, you're in, in high school, you don't think you're going to be in a toilet paper factory and having a good time, <laughs> having a good time. So um, after that co-op, I came back for a semester and I took a second co-op with Kimberly Clark, but I was at their Nina facility at the corporate group. So I transitioned to the corporate group that was working with the manufacturing line that I was on. So kind of looping back in with the connections that I had made on my first co-op. And that one was more um, research-based corporate development. It wasn't really research and development as, you know, i experience later, but it was, um, you know, more optimizing and capital projects and strategic. Can you elaborate a little, a little bit more for those that are listening? Like, I guess, what is, what is that dynamic between corporate and manufacturing? Like, what is the, what is the purpose of, of each function? A little bit, a little bit more. Yeah. So manufacturing, I mean, that's how the company makes its money, you know, selling goods and maximizing production and things like that. And whereas the the corporate group is usually the more strategic, like where are we going to invest in next? What are we going to invest in? So how are we going to make the the production, you know, better and more optimized? So I mean, the mills focus is usually, you know, just get stuff out the door, keep the lines running. You know, sometimes there's some optimization that they do, but typically it's the corporate group that that takes that on because otherwise the mill is going to be overloaded 
Interesting. So it's almost more like future focused. Like Mill is like, okay, we're told we need to make a hundred X and 50 Y today. How, how efficiently can we do that? But corporate's almost like, well, what do we need to make tomorrow? Do we need to make 75 of X and 25 of Y and then invest in Z and make yeah. 50 of Z? Okay. That's how, so that's interesting. Can be more on the future side of it. Yeah. And then any time like a vendor comes out with new equipment, the corporate group is what are the people that go and test it and verify that it would be a good investment. Gotcha. So was that another nine month um, internship? Yeah, that was another nine month internship. I was becoming a professional co-op at that time. So, I'm curious as to um, your reflections on the nine month internship. I mean, I don't know if you just had any just summer internships, but one of the things when you're an engineering student is this idea of, do I do a nine month internship? Should I just look for summer stuff? curious to your reflections on that. I couldn't recommend a nine-month co-op more. I think you get your your feet wet a little bit more. You have more skin in the game. You get more ownership and you get more responsibility. Um, Because just typically from what I've seen, projects typically don't get done in three months. I mean, lead times and and delivering deliverables and stuff like that, it's, it's much easier to execute it in nine months. I mean, there's there's projects and work that you can do in three months, but it's mostly implementation. Like the the project's already been designed, it's already been laid out, all the stuff's been ordered. You're just rolling it out, which is also a very good experience. I mean, you learn a lot during during startups and during installs, but but seeing a full project through typically nine months is a is a good time, and and companies do really well with planning that. So Kimberly Clark was really good about making sure like you're doing actual engineering work. Cause I had friends who, who talked about how they didn't get anything really to sink their teeth in. So, I mean, for three months. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, and I would say that's a question to ask in an interview is what kind of work are you, are you going to be doing? And you know, what are expectations and things like that? Because yeah, you don't want to get into a, a three month or nine month thing. And then you're just, you know, sitting around twiddling your thumbs. So during these nine month stretches, you're you're getting a lot of experience in the paper industry, uh, which maybe some people might not think is is directly into that biomedical area. Uh, but what is, I guess, what is going through your mind during these times in terms of what you might want to be doing long term? How you're feeling about what you're learning at school or how your degrees are lining up? Um, are you kind of seeing a, a change in what you're thinking you want to spend your time doing once you actually graduate and look for that full time job? Yeah, so I think what what the manufacturing and the corporate job kind of taught me is mechanical engineering is was what I wanted to be doing a little bit more so. Um so I also because of biomedical engineering be kind, being kind of a smaller program, the way that my coursework ended up being is most of my biomedical classes were at the beginning of college and most of my mechanical classes were at the end of college, which was kind of interesting during the co-ops because it's by my second co-op, I still hadn't had dynamics, but I was going into my fourth year. So like, that's a little, a little different than, you know, other, other mechanical engineering students or people with, you know, that much college behind them already. Um, But I mean, those two co-ops kind of solidified that I wanted to be doing manufacturing or, you know, the, the paper industry is really interesting because the machines that, are making the paper are just so intricate and so dynamic and there's so much going on and and science behind it not just paper science just like the mechanical manufacturing science and it's it was it was just really interesting to see so and and when you gain that kind of depth of knowledge you just want to dive in deeper so that's kind of that's kind of what happened after that second co-op i knew i wanted to go back into the paper industry. Like I felt comfortable going back into it. It's just whether it was going to be with Kimberly Clark or a competitor or a vendor even. I mean, there's a lot of vendors that do the machine design for for these paper machines and converting machines. So, I mean, that was, that also got on my radar is, you know, maybe going into an OEM or a, yeah, like a vendor, OEM vendor. Sure. Okay. So you come back from the second internship. You said it's about your fourth year, I guess. So how did, how did that trail out? Cause you said you were there for five, which I totally recommend for those listening. Cause go to college for five years. You got the rest of your life. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Like, what, like how often are you going to have a bunch of your friends around you all the time with 
worked it. Anyways, I will have a set. We should have a separate uh, late night episode, Brendan. And thank yeah. you five years the, for college. The five year. Yeah. I've I mean, do it. You, you got the rest of your life to work 30 years and be nine to five. College is, college is fun. So anyways, so yeah, sorry to interject that into my question. But again, I guess, yeah, I guess. So yeah, you come back from that second internship. Yeah. So I came back from that second internship and it would have been. So I was always taking fall co-ops. So it would have been spring of my fourth year, I believe that I would have come back. So by that time I was like, okay, I need to just get done (laughs) and not to go on right on the five year parade. But I mean, with the, the amount of coursework that I need to finish and it became very apparent that I needed to get dynamics and and all of those like very you know essential mechanical classes dynamics vibrations all of those starting to because that's where the interest was so you know i did my fourth and fifth year didn't do anything in the summer i actually took summer courses so if i was never on co-op or an internship i was doing summer classes just to keep the ball rolling keep her moving as they say keep, like, keep her moving yeah as, <laughs> as the wisconsin people say yeah. um so yeah i i finished out college in five years graduated in the spring of 2015 but during that fifth year obviously i was getting ready to apply for full-time jobs so that fall career fair for the fifth year you know i i kind of did my due diligence and and got the guns ready to ready to fire for for getting that position because in my mind I was like I, I want to have a position before Christmas like I want to have it locked down because you, you hear that through all the other people applying that you know companies are, are being more and more aggressive about hiring sooner rather than later in in the hiring process now I don't know if that's true anymore with COVID going on because I had my my sister's boyfriend just graduated from MSOE and he had a hard time uh, being hired straight out of college just because companies are cutting back. But at, at 2015, they were they were hiring uh, pretty aggressively. So I actually interviewed with several paper companies um, and had a, and had my Georgia Pacific offer by Halloween. I want to say. I think that's a common trend. You know, I've, I've heard, especially in what I'll call like a potential employees market where you are a commodity, um, companies realize that and they know they got to get to people first. And so they're looking for the top talent early in fall so that they don't lose it because they, they know that if they try to go and look for the top talent in spring in a potential employees market that they're going to lose it. Now that changes obviously on, on marketing, but I've definitely heard that trend before for sure. So yeah, so what was interesting though with the Georgia Pacific interviews is they do a full 8-hour interview where they bring you on site and you are talking with different groups and they actually have you interviewing for multiple positions at one time and then seeing what you like the best. So when I interviewed with them, which which is actually pretty cool because you're not you're not just getting thrown into, you know, one cookie cutter you know, entry level engineering position, you're, you're actually kind of have to think about what, what interests you the most. So when I was interviewing with them, I interviewed for a corporate capital project engineering position, I interviewed for a research and development technology position. And then I interviewed for, I think it was like an HVAC position. And fluids and like that kind of stuff nope like like that that hvac interview was like you're designing it for the mill and i'm like your mill's not gonna work it's really not like that's not where where my my expertise is so i mean it was really interesting but it fills your day um which was kind of cool but then i landed on the the research and development position it was more interesting because it was testing and developing new technologies in paper converting, which was really cool. So you get to, you just get to play around with machines all day and do product development and see if products can work on this machine and, you know, try new adhesives or try new paper, try, see, see what you can make work for the product development team, which was, was kind of cool. So the product development team would come to you with a product 
And they're like, how do we make this? And that, that was the job, which was pretty cool. Interesting. So this is like the corporate level. Like I think that can be misleading for some engineers. If you look at like a corporate level engineering job, you yeah. might think, well, that's corporate level. I'm not going to be doing much engineering, but it sounds like you were doing a very hands-on, a very hands-on engineering job. Yeah. So actually it was really interesting because I didn't, because it's R and D, they can't give you like the full description. So kind of going back to what you said in the beginning of not knowing, you know, necessarily what you're going to work on. Um, I mean, it was a very vague description. You knew you were going to be on the, this technology development team. You knew you were in Mino, Wisconsin. And like, that was about it. And I remember walking in on the first day and they're like, well, if you're, if you're going to be traveling and, you know, going places, you need to be applying for the, the employee credit card. And I like raised my hand. I'm like, I don't think I'm going to be traveling. And the HR person looked at me and she's like, out of everybody in this room, you're the one that's going to be traveling the most. <laughs> and I'm like, what? Oh, okay. <laughs> Crap. Thanks, thanks job that. description. Yeah. So like, I had no idea, like, the position was going to be one where you were on the road, like, at all. Like, I thought I was just in an R&D center and that's, and like, maybe going to like a couple vendors. And like, the vendors for paper are all in Green Bay. So like, that's not really traveling in my mind. So I didn't think I was going to be traveling, but no, it was like, you are going across the country. You are spending time in other facilities. You are, you are on the road. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, didn't know that. So we laugh about that a lot in the show. And it's honestly really one of the, one of the reasons that we started this show is because there are so many people that accept a job, have have read over the job description, have interviewed for the job. They've got it. They're starting the next, they're starting, you know, next week, Monday, but they could not tell you at all what they're going to do every single day. Yeah. Because like they, they don't know. And so I, one, one just quick question is look, looking back like on the job description, how can, how can people deduce if they're going to be traveling a lot? I mean, there's the, like, I guess, what what would be your, your how, how you do that? Is there any way? I think it's honestly just ask if, if you're expected to travel and what percentage. Like, I, I think it's as simple as that. And I just, that was one question I, I missed during the interview. I mean, I asked where I was going to be, you know, what, what the expectations were. And traveling just never came up for some reason. I mean, I knew I was going to be writing trial reports. I knew I was going to be doing experiments. I knew... I generally knew what I was going to be working on, just not specifics because it's an R&D project. So you, they can't tell you until you start. But yeah, no, it was just like, it was a little bit of a shock. And then like, yeah, from, from then on, I kind of knew, hey, how much time am I going to be on the road is a pretty big question to ask, especially if you're, you know, looking to be home. Yeah, I think that's a good point that everything in that job description is not all that there is. And the hiring managers who are writing those may just be so accustomed to the daily aspects of the job that like travel is just a part of it. I, I totally forgot that that's a big thing because it's just what it is. Uh, so asking those extra questions and being like specific, like, hey, what is an average week for me going to look like or an average month? Like, what does that entail are important questions to ask because they'll help pull out some of those details besides like you will work on cool projects in paper converting and we need someone who is innovative or whatever, you know, yeah. kind of generic terms are in there. Like the specifics don't come out until you ask for a lot of them. Right. Cause they get so kind of ingrained because even for me, like if I heard an R and D engineer job, I would think there would not be much travel. Cause typically I think R and D in an R and D center, they're doing R and D in that lab. I would, I would guess that most R and D jobs are not a lot of travel, but you know, I'm not in the paper industry. And so maybe like someone who's in the paper industry would be like, what are you talking about? Obviously that HR person knew, I mean, they're not technical, but they knew that R and D meant travel. Yeah. Um, so. No, my manager for the first month, I don't think I saw my, my actual reporting manager because he was at in China doing development work. And like, I saw him for maybe one day right when I started and then he was flying out the next day. And I was just like, oh, okay, sweet. You're just spending three weeks in China. Who knew? <laughs> so yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, well, so curious as to your reflections on that. So, I mean, obviously there, people have their own opinions on travel and stuff. I think for me personally, if the the younger you are, the less tied down you are, the easier it is for sure. Um, yeah. But I guess you're, you're a, so once you, once the dust kind of settled on the whole, I'm traveling a lot. Um, what are your thoughts on it? Did you like it? Did you think it was cool or 
What's yeah. I guess what about it? So in the R and D world, I thought it it was the R and D world is a lot more fun. I would say um, when it comes to travel because you don't really own the equipment, so you kind of just come in, you do what you're gonna do, you try you try your different things, and then you get to leave. So it was actually pretty pretty fun with the testing and optimizing and seeing the results and you know coming up with the conclusions on whether you're gonna do it again or not do it again. Um, I think for the R and D world though, I was traveling a lot by myself, and as a young person you know, straight out of college, I had never traveled by myself out into the world. Like you, you typically are in groups and stuff like that. But I mean, you had to become very independent, very quick for for that group, because my manager, which I really liked was he was he was easy to, to work with. And and you just give him updates, but he, he kind of let you do your own thing, which was really nice, as long as you were doing the right thing you know you weren't going off into Timbuktu with whatever you were pursuing but um yeah he you learned to to develop independence very quickly which I really liked and it's a it's a very strong thing to have in a sense so it it was fun and like you said it's better to do it when you're younger it's better to do it when you don't have responsibilities back at home because you hear the stories of people who have kids and like then they're just gone and you don't see your kids grow up so I would highly recommend doing it before you have kids but um, I mean whatever floats your boat I know plenty of people who still travel who have you know big families back home but I really enjoyed it and then um, so I was on that team for about four years and what was kind of interesting about that is I kept getting bigger and bigger research and development projects, which I, I was getting frustrated that I didn't know project management all that well. And there's a project management, a corporate project management group that's more out of the business and the capital projects, whereas research and development is kind of their own sector. And then you have corporate and then you have the mill. So corporate had a project management group and I requested from my manager to kind of float to that group for a little bit to learn project management, just so you know how to balance everything. Because as soon as stuff starts getting bigger and bigger, you kind of lose the pieces that you, you definitely need. So by year three, I was floating in between research and development and the corporate group which was fun. And they gave me a mentor to learn capital projects and project management. And I did that for two years and was on some pretty big capital projects for the company as like a project engineer who, who just helped the, the project manager. So like we were always tied at the hip doing stuff, which was really beneficial in learning, learning that skill set. I think this is a great example of being self-aware of what skills you might be lacking at in your job. I think there are a lot of people out there who don't, you know, take some time to think about what are the skills I need to be to be continuing forward. And even though you're in the R&D position, which wasn't under that full project management umbrella there, like realizing that you needed that to be better your job is like a great example. I think people listening, like if you want to... If you want to excel and move forward, you have to be a little bit aware of, of what skills you need, um, even when they're non-technical, probably especially when they're non-technical, um, about what you need to really kind of stand out and move forward, especially when it doesn't apply to your role. And I think that, I mean, obviously moves beyond R&D and project management to really anything else. So I think that's that's awesome you're able to do that. Was, was the benefit that you gained, like when you gained that experience, something that you immediately saw as being applicable to kind of whatever other role you might have taken on within the company later on? Yeah, so actually what ended up happening is the project management group stole me away from the R&D group. <laughs> cuz cuz they needed a because they were developing somebody to become a large capital project manager, they needed somebody to step into that role cuz one of the the big things that we're seeing in the paper industry right now is there is a knowledge gap. So you have a lot of people that are between the ages of 23 to 28, 29, somewhere in there. And then it jumps straight to like 45, 50. And there's nobody really in the middle. 
So once you, you train and mentor somebody like that, they want to, they want to put you in the group kind of thing. Cause you're, you're the next one to come up and take over when, when these guys retire, which there's a lot of retirements happening. So yeah, so that's, they, they stole me away at that four year mark and how I worded it to people are my training wheels are coming off in the project management group and I can now take on my own capital projects and be the, be the project manager. But what a really cool way to even kind of like pseudo intern internal internship it. I don't know. I mean, yeah, it, it started with, I have this knowledge gap, but what I'm hearing is even potentially, and this sounds like maybe more of a bigger company thing, but creating these opportunities for you to kind of try other stuff with a non-commit, like an internship where, Hey, you know, I kind of want to go job shadow this a little bit, learn a little bit more. I think it'll help my skill set. but it, it sounds like for you, it went the way of, Oh, I did that. And boom, I'm, I'm going that direction now. But I think almost equally important, it could, you go to that and be like, Oh, I hate this. This is miserable. I would never want to do this. And then you go a different route. And that's, as we've discussed many times in the show, equally as important. So how did, did you know that that was an option? Did your manager say like this, or did you just kind of be like, Hey, can I do this? <laughs> um, so I kind of knew in the back, like, cause I had met the manager of the, of the project managers and I brought it up to him because he would have to be the one that ultimately approves me working on something. Um, I brought it up to him and I'm like, Hey, I have this gap. He's like, Oh, talk to your manager about it. And, and those two managers were very well connected to each other. It's not like, they were on polar opposites and they, they had one-on-ones with each other because the R and D converting group and the capital group kind of have to go hand in hand for the investment strategy. So I ended up just talking to my manager. I'm like, Hey, like, this is something that interests me. You know, can I tie it to an R and D project that I've been working on? And it was for our compact product. I had been working on this R and D project since I had gotten there. And they were finally going to invest in the equipment that I had I'd been optimizing, testing, trying to trying to sell to the company to to go and, and expand the portfolio kind of thing. And so they were finally going to pull the trigger on it. And I would just kind of be the R&D engineer, but also the project engineer learning the, the project management. So it worked out for the company, company's interest, because they kind of got a two for one. For, for me to do that. And I would be tied to the capital project and learn that. So that's kind of how it came to be. But yeah, I definitely had to talk to my manager and get it, get it approved. And then HR had to do their thing to make sure time and all that kind of stuff. But okay. So you're in the capital project management job now, I guess let's talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. So that, that one's actually, you know, when you talk about whether you use your actual engineering degree or not, Project management is probably the the field that I would say, like engineers can go into it, but you're not going to use the the engineering technical skills that you you normally would use in a in a project engineering role. You're balancing a lot of budgets, you're requesting a lot of quotes, and doing quote comparisons and and like technical comparisons. But I mean, you're not getting into the weeds in design and and things like that. But and and you're interacting with people a lot more. So like you don't have any direct reports, but you have people who are the subject matter experts coming to you and telling you what you need based on the scope of the project. So kind of going back to that biomedical, you become a jack of all trades and know enough about HVAC, dust collection, converting equipment, stuff like that. So you kind of get a broader holistic outlook of, of putting in a project. And a lot more people interaction, it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. A lot more people interaction. Um, you, you definitely have to be comfortable talking to people, telling people, Hey, you're, you're not on target. You're not, or you're not, we, you need to have this deliverable. You need to be able to kind of command a room and say, Hey, like we need to have this decision by today. And you know, what is it going to take to do that? So it's a lot more of that rather than, you know, design, which at the end of, at the end of the day, there's, there's still some, I I was still very interested in doing hands-on and that was, that was what I liked about the R and D 
stuff is I was still working with machines, whereas the capital project management group, you, you don't really get to do that anymore. The, the fun part about the capital project is when you get to the point of install and you start seeing all the work that you had done the previous year start coming to life and being installed and starting up and all of a sudden you have paper towel or toilet paper rolls coming out that are saleable that's when you get like that reward of like oh this is what what I did did you feel like you also got a better sense of like how the business operates and runs in general I found that when when you're doing that like in-depth engineering stuff you're like this is the task this is what I'm doing you know we're gonna make this because it's the best but then you know those ideas get shot down because there's a business reason why that all has to happen do you feel like working on that side you had a better broader vision of why they did things at the company what was important and all the other like similar factors that go into making some of those bigger decisions and not just this is the best technology and and we have to do it yeah so Project managers are tied heavily with the business interactions. So there's typically a business person that's in charge of whatever category and you're, you know, talking to them to making sure it aligns with, you know, hey, we need XYZ product by XYZ date. How can we hit this with your project kind of thing? So you're you're talking with the business to get them to to build the portfolio that is is most desirable for the company. And Again, kind of like that that converting technology group where the product developers come to you with an idea of what product to make. The business is coming to you for, hey, we want to make this product in this location. How do we do it? So you're kind of the interface between the business and and the engineering as as the project manager. So. Okay, so how many how many years are you still in that job? Are you sorry? You, I think you moved to you recently moved to a different role. Yeah, so I recently moved to a different role. So I did project management for about a year, which is a short little blip. But with with the training and mentorship, I feel like I've done it for three years, almost. So by that point, COVID hit. And that project management job went from so transitioning from converting technology to project management, I went up in travel to about 85, 90%. So the capital project group, I mean, you kind of have to have that in-person, face-to-face site, site visits and, and all of that. And, and especially for installs and startups, you need to be on site supporting. So I was on the road a whole bunch and, and racking up those travel miles and all of those points and things like that. And then COVID hit. And right when COVID hit, obviously travel got canceled. You're starting to do more stuff behind the computer virtually and the capital project management aspect that I really liked, which was the install startup, you know, networking with the mill, seeing how all the other projects are working went away. So the stuff that I enjoyed was no longer there and one of the things, because I had a career mentor that GP set me up with, you know, early on in my career. And one of the things that we had talked about was to gain more experience, eventually you will need to go into ops, which is the mill. And there, I got a phone call from my manager's manager saying that there was a position open in Louisiana that they needed somebody with capital that has the capital project experience because they're looking to invest some major major capital money into this facility to to bring it up to you know chewing up all the paper on the paper machine and you know this would be a really good fit this would expand my project portfolio so in august i interviewed for that position ended up taking it and now i'm in louisiana Gotcha. Well, that makes sense. I mean, I don't know, from the outside perspective, you're just saying like, you like to see it come into place and do it. And it sounds yeah. like the position you found wasn't, I mean, I'm sure there's operations like, Hey, we've been doing this for 20 years. Let's make sure we keep the same productivity rate ops jobs. But it sounds like that's not necessarily what it was. It was more so like, Hey, we're going to be building and putting in installing a bunch of equipment and we need someone there who has budget experience, who's kind of thought through this and then can actually help us make sure the implementation goes well. And so it sounds like an implementation ops job, which is exactly what you said that you liked. So that's great. What, I mean, yeah. what a fortuitous phone call. Well, and, and I think the other, the other side that really interested the mill is 
the the project managers know more intricacies with the equipment and the vendors and you know the negotiations that can happen between them so the mill always from my experience it's always interesting what they ask for and what they don't know is on the table could be on the table kind of thing so having the experience of being part of how to get the best equipment possible for the best price possible kind of thing is something that I've learned and that I could bring to the mill team so they know what the the best thing they could ask for is kind of thing. So that that I think that aspect too really interested them because some of the best equipment might not be on the table right away, but if you ask for it, you might get it kind of thing. It sounds like all these other experiences, as, as you've moved forward, you've still been able to apply what you learned previously to the new job. Um, and I'm sure some of that is being within the same company or the same industry. But just in general, the idea that what you learned previously may still be related to what you want to do in the future, even though they're not like that closely related. And I think this is this is a good example of that. And I wonder if there's anything else that you you feel like in your current role or even in project management um, that you picked up from your previous jobs that you were really able to go move forward with you and were like, hey, I'm glad I had that experience or that knowledge. I see how it applies to the job I have now, or I see how it could apply to something in the future. Is there anything like kind of stands out to you in that area? Yeah. So I think the, the biggest thing that I've learned is networking and the importance of networking and building, you know, who, who can I call that's going to be this subject matter expert? And who's going to know a little bit more than I know, or who who can provide the the support that we're looking to provide? So I think networking and knowing knowing that and keeping your network strong, like once you transition to a different role, you know you still can fall back on the, those connections you made from the first role because they could help you later on. So one of the examples is in this this ops job we're having paper quality issues but the people i've met at at that r d facility who are paper experts and who are some of the smartest paper people you know in the company this this mill facility doesn't really know those connections so bringing that group in to help with our outcomes is is something that has helped kind of thing I think that makes a lot of sense because so initially they, there's always these people um, I don't know, you see them at bigger companies that they, I don't know, they look like they're on the executive track and they're going and doing six to nine months stints in a bunch of different groups and the initial my initial engineering response is what are you going to do in six to nine months that's going to contribute to anything like what is this like why is this person doing this and as I've grown a little bit wiser I've started to realize that maybe they're just building a bunch of connections and the value of a high level C-suite person is someone who has a bunch of networks and can connect the can, knows a little bit about what everyone does and knows how to connect the right people so that they can see how to place people like the man, the, the, the manager to above you that called you that knows how to see where moving these pieces together can help really add value. Yeah. Um, it's not initially intuitive and I don't know, if, I don't know if it's the best way to do it. I don't know, but it, it, it has helped me kind of realize a different light on that because it, it really emphasizes networking and the importance of networking. Um, but I think that's a, a, a tidbit that everyone can take away, even if you're not planning on moving a lot and doing different things like networking won't, won't hurt you. Um, you know, it's a, it's only going to create potentially more opportunities. One of the bigger one of the bigger themes of the show is careers are random. They're, they're, they're seemingly random in terms of the paths you make. And so if, if you make the assumption that your future is random, you want to create as many opportunities then to exercise or to, to allow that randomness to work in your favor And networking to me is how you do that. You allow, it allows you to open more doors so that randomness can flow in and then you get to choose what you want to do. Mm-hmm. So it's, it sounds like that that's worked out. Really, really great for you. I mean, and I'm, I'm, and also for the mill that you're working with. I'm, I'm really glad to hear that. I think probably one of the interesting things for the people, at least in this current time, is what's it like to work in paper products during uh, <laughs> a pandemic that has caused paper products to just be ripped off the shelves. Like, uh, I don't know, the latest Hot toy. Cakes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Who knew? Yeah. Well, so I currently work in paper towel, which is one of the hottest commodities in paper products right now. <laughs> Um, you obviously can't get enough production out the door. So it's been really interesting to see that shift because 
toilet paper has been a focus for, you know, extended periods of time. Paper towels has always been there, but not to the extent of what it is now. Um, so production, there's a higher pressure on production. And then there's also, you know, obviously the pressure to stay safe during these times because, you know, COVID's still definitely out there and, and wreaking havoc. Um, so seeing how the company has transitioned with that and, you know, the, the opportunities that are coming, yeah, it's, it's just been crazy in my mind. And I mean, we, like I said, we can't make enough paper towels. So, I mean, capital projects are shifting to, to the paper towel world, um, optimization projects, paper projects. Yeah. It's, it's just like, yeah, it's long hours. Crazy. Yeah, sure. it, it sounds like all the timelines have got shorter, but all but all the aspects of actually executing everything have gotten harder. So it's like a like a double a double whammy of hey, we need to do this as fast as possible, but also people can't really interact with each other, so you're gonna have to figure out how to build a machine, install it, have people run it without them really being next to each other. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't I don't I don't think any capital projects have had the trigger pulled yet to where we're we're experiencing that quite it's just more of like the production aspects of like hey if the machine's down for longer than four hours you're getting a phone call from a vp kind of thing saying what what's going on because i mean it's it's to the point i mean you've seen store shelves everybody's seen the store shelves of where you know there's there's nothing on them so obviously every paper company right now wants to fill those store shelves um but yeah i mean it's it's optimizing the machines at, at faster rates than I've seen in a long time. So like, and, and downtime has to be more justified than, you know, just saying, Oh, well, I'm just, I feel like cleaning up the machine today. No, you, you need to have, you know, what, what is the purpose of doing this and what is it going to gain for the company kind of thing? Well, that adds an interesting engineering element to ops. Cause so you know, my understanding with, with preventative maintenance on our equipment, right? It's always this guess of like, well, every approximately 500 hours, we need to replace this bearing. What's the technical science? Could it go to 600? Probably. Well, but if it gets a crack at 200, it might fail. I don't know. Like, and these are engineering decisions that are put on the engineer to decide. And there's some theory that goes into them, but they're really just rules of thumb. Yeah. So I'm sure those are getting pressed harder and harder. And so they're leveraging engineers like you to say, hey, can we press this bearing life a little bit more? Do we really need to replace it? And those are... I don't interesting thing. Those are interesting times to be an engineer because it's it's another example of where you use your engineering knowledge in those problem times. You know, you don't know the answer. It's not a two plus what's the answer to two plus two. It's this it, it's weird abstract things where you're gonna leverage your whole knowledge base to say, well, I think so. I'm I, my guess is yes. And that those are engineering times. That's what an engineer does, is when they're they don't have all the information. They're not a scientist going to make a perfect calculation. They're an engineer. They're going to try and do the best they can, the fastest they can, they can in the budget that they have. And so in some ways, it's got to be an exciting time to be an engineer because you're probably really being leveraged on. Yeah. Yeah. So my current position right now is a manufacturing engineer. So I'm in charge of the asset strategy and then the actual machine and the production. So I have to own whatever my machine's doing. And then they're leveraging me for putting in new equipment because I think currently my case packer is getting replaced. So the thing that loads the cases and puts it all in the, the cardboard boxes, because the one that's currently on my line has has no OEE, or, which is operational envelope something. I don't know. They always throw those acronyms at you, but it, it's not performing to where it needs to. So we're putting in a new one. But that acid strategy that you're talking about of whether, you know, you should be replacing bearings six months or is it three months? And if it's three months, making sure it gets on the calendar at the proper time and then executed properly is, yeah, I mean, it's 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 really exciting. It's definitely a good experience because I don't think it's ever, it's ever going to be this high pressure for something like this. Yeah, I think, you know, we're, we're kind of wrapping up on time here. I, I just have one last question for you. Um, so it sounds like you've interacted with the business unit a lot in your experience. And, you know, I I think there's a lot of people who think at some point I should get a master's degree. I should get maybe my master's in business and these things. And um, there's always an argument about whether or not it's it's valuable and whether or not you should do it. And, uh, you know, I'm so we haven't had anyone on the show, though, 
who seems like a candidate of deciding whether or not I should get a master's degree. And uh, maybe you haven't pulled the trigger on And I'm just curious as to your reflections on that. Do you think you'll get a master's degree? Do you think you need to? If you don't, why? And if you do, why? You know, for those who maybe are in a similar spot of of debating that topic. Yeah, I. So that's always been that's been the kind of current debate right now internally for me. Um, just because, like you said, it, it it comes into play quite often. I have a lot of coworkers who are currently like that are my age um, who are currently going through it and decided that you know it, it can't hurt um, to have an MBA or anything like that. Other than opportunity costs, because you're going to give up time, right? I mean, that that's that's what, you know, for people, sorry, people say, I just want to bring that up to people, like opportunity costs you, is a thing where you have, you're, you're by executing a master's degree, you are giving up time doing something else. Yeah. And even if your company pays for it, it's not a financial opportunity cost. It can be time. And it sounds like you're super busy right now too. So sorry, I did interrupt you. I just think that's an important point for people to know that even if there's no financial cost, there still is a cost. Yeah, so I think currently right now, I don't think I could do an MBA or um, the other master's program that was highly recommended to me when I was in project management was master's in engineering management um, or even the PM certification. So there's there's other routes. So the certification, I think, is like one class and then you take a test and then you can have that those letters at the end of your name, um, which is highly recommended, I think, by our company just because it's the one class and you get the certification and you're, you're good to go. Um, but I mean, right now I, I don't think I could do an MBA, but it's on the radar as something potentially, but I really think it depends on where your career is bringing you and, and kind of where you want to go. So a good friend of mine was, it, it was in the position I'm in now, which is the manufacturing engineering role, but he wanted to be more in the business and be one of the, the people interacting with the project managers, trying to decide where investments are gonna go and what investment is, it's gonna be. So he went for an MBA, which I think makes a lot of sense because he's more in the business now rather than you know, the actual engineering. So really it's kind of where you envision yourself. I don't envision myself ever in the business, knock on wood, it could happen or something like that. But I, I don't think, an MBA would stop. Like if I didn't have my MBA, it wouldn't stop me from getting that position. Yeah, that's a good thing to keep in mind is that they're maybe not necessarily a prerequisite, but something that could be good, but it won't necessarily stop you. Um, and don't don't let a advanced degree or lack of one uh, think that you can't go on to do something else. Mm-hmm. I think it's really all about being intentful about what you're going to gain from. I and mean, we've heard it in the show, even Brennan's sister, Caitlin Timrak, when we had her on the show, her using a ma- her master's degree to pivot. She was in a technical field. She wanted to be in a different technical field. So she got a master's in that other technical field and use that to pivot technically. Um, mm-hmm. That's the self-awareness, as, we, as we've talked about before, even just of where you want to go, what you want to need. or But it's a complex thing. It's there's a lot of things, you know. And then we talk about opportunity costs. Okay, well, what am I going to give up? What am I going? What do I think I'm going to gain? These are engineering questions we deal with daily. We we don't know the answer, but we kind of got to make a decision. One more thing on the MBA that we've I've run into is the the position. If if it requires it and you don't have it, sometimes they will let you get it while you're in that position as well. So say I wanted to go in that business direction, they would allow me to do that and and give me time to go do that as well if, if that is a requirement for that position and that would be part of the career development into that role as well so totally great point yeah yeah so even if you don't have it you can get it. yeah for someone in, in your situation where like you're you're in the company you know the company you're not trying to move to a different company you're not trying to use the degree so that your resume looks good so you can get a job at a different company like you would already know them hiring manager you would know the stakeholders they would likely know you like i think that makes a lot of sense when you're in that type of ingrained position that um yeah there would be other opportunities for you to you to get to get it. i think that's great a really good uh really good point that i've never thought about before i think that makes a lot of sense um Great. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. I think it's been really, really helpful for me. I think I learned a little bit about paper products, which I, I know a lot of people don't think about what it takes. You know, I don't know. I think maybe for the non, if there are non-engineers that listen to the show that are like, wow, like it, it takes a lot to even just make the the simple things we don't even necessarily think about. Um, and it gets especially emphasized when those products become an incredibly high demand um, for whatever market reasons. Um, 
but yeah, so I guess with that, I want to say thank you for your time and I really, really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. It's been, it's been really fun. Self-reflection. Yeah. All right. Awesome. Thanks for See ya. All right. Yeah. Bye. Man, paper products in a pandemic. And it's, it's fun to see kind of the engineering side of that, huh? I did not expect that this was ever going to be something we would talk about, but I'm, I'm glad we did. It was interesting to see. I don't, I know nothing about the paper uh, industry, the paper product industry. So I want to learn a little bit more. And so something that she had mentioned to me before that I hadn't really thought about is like, not only is demand higher, but like in different realms, right? So there's like the, there's the, the paper product, like the toilet paper you buy for work. That's obviously like fly garbage and there's machines that make that right. And they're, and then you have the machines that make your 68 ply soft little small bear rub that that um, that has a different capacity, right? But all these people stayed at home. So not, mm-hmm. so not only did you have more demand, but you had less demand on these res, on the commercial side machines. And so these like residential machines just got like overloaded. And so a, a tough time, I would think, to be a manufacturing engineer on that. I, I, she. She talked about it with grace, I think, really, compared to yeah. what I would you know, expect if you were in charge of a line and it had that much demand where VP calls in a huge company are happening um, like that. Yeah, can't even can't imagine. I don't but, think I'd know, be that calm. But it's, it's, these are things with, with manufacturing engineers. I'm not a manufacturing engineer. I know I would hate it. But it seems like the people who are manufacturer and manufacturing engineers that can handle it, they have this this calmness about them. So. That's a good I'm, point. I'm happy for me. It sounds like she, had, at least um, in in our show, was able to come across as calm about it. I would just well be, suited for the job, and and yeah. she doesn't have to travel ninety percent of her time. Yeah. She can at least be in one place. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. So another great episode. I think for me, the the big there's one big kind of theme that I really loved about her story, and it's this idea of management, both from other people, but also internally. So the traditional idea of management helping me out is kind of her later story of how her manager above her current manager looked and said, okay, I think moving her with her knowledge to this position is going to be better for her, but also have synergistic values to the mill. I think that's great. What you would hope a great manager would do would be looking down and helping moving pieces to get a bigger benefit. But I think what's cool for her is her earlier story when she moved from her R and D job to her corporate planning, um, job of how she get us a little bit of self-management and she's like i need these skills i need to kind of adjust to get these project management skills and she made that happen talked to the stakeholders executed it to the betterment of her and her company um and i i think that's a good thing for people to realize that good management happens externally but also happens internally um and so i I loved it i thought awesome to have it in a single um, example I totally agree. I think that's been something we we hear about from a lot of people who've come on the show who've been successful is it's a lot about figuring out where where you need to improve your skills, what you need to learn, whether that's formally and getting a master's degree in something, whether that's informally and trying something out in the company to, to gain those skills. I think it's always something if you want to be thinking about not necessarily necessarily just advancing within the company, but just being better at your job and opening up doors, maybe different opportunities, um, even laterally, like that's something you got to be aware of. And And so for me, I think We've talked about the biomedical thing before. We talked about a lot in this episode, but uh, just the idea that that what you learn in school and what your first or second job is isn't necessarily what you have to be destined to be for the rest of your career. Um, you're learning skills that are valuable in in how to problem solve and how to think. Um, in Maria's case, you know, she had some of those networking things of how to connect her with stuff. Like, there's a lot more to. Uh, you and the opportunities you can pursue than just just the paper and just the years of experience doing XYZ. So it's important to always think about that, especially if you're in a position where you're trying to make a move, you want to do something else, but you're not sure you're like, well, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I have the qualifications or whatever, like, like you might because of all the stuff uh, that you've picked up just by doing your job. Um, if you're being aware of it, if you're kind of gliding through your job, maybe not so much. But if you're you're being self aware, you're thinking about what you're learning and how to apply those, there's gonna be a lot more doors open. I mean, I mean, in this case, it was R&D, it was project management, operations, who knows where she's going next. Um, it could be really anywhere in the company because she's taken the, the time to really think about that and focus on her skills. Right. And I think what's cool about her story is it emphasized the value of that. Like a lot of time you might think, well, okay, I'm an, I'm an employee. I'm going to do this for five or 10 years and I'm going to make a change. When I make that change, I'm going to be a detriment to the company because I'm going to be an unqualified person moving into a new role. Whereas this kind of turns that thought on head. It's, it's more so no. 
it can actually be really advantageous because now you have a person with five or 10 years of skill set in the company doing X going over to Y where Y really needs or can really benefit from a little bit of X. And that can actually be a huge advantage to, to the new group. And I think that it, it you know, it, a great example of that and kind of the counter, the counterpoint to people who think that maybe moving is going to be a detriment or, or the company is going to view it as a negative thing. Cause they, if they're smart, they may, and they do it right. It may be a huge synergistic bad. So. Yeah, no, definitely. I think that's true. And, and hopefully something that uh, more companies and more people will be aware of, of, of how skills can be fit into different roles and, and make a huge impact. So right. awesome. Stuff. I, awesome stuff from Maria yeah. today. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think, sorry, I want to emphasize too. Like it seemed like, them as a big company really like if you're a big company right you want to think about what what are the things that me as a big company can do better than if i was a small company and so things like in her initial example where she's like they let me try out for three positions in the same interview like that's a big only big companies can do that and that's a great advantage you know i think that's a that's leveraging your big companyness and um I think you want, as a big company, you want to continue to do that. And another way you can leverage your big company is, is just to allow your employees to do these kind of things. Um, and so props to props to them for leveraging their big company as well. I think that's excellent um, and, and of benefit to the employees too. So um, yeah, just kind of totally a different agree. way to think about, you know, big company versus small company and the advantages. Interesting point. So definitely. Awesome. Right, well, something special for guests up next. Get excited. I'm not going to tell you about it. You should. Yeah, it'll it'll be an adventure. It'll be a trip for sure. Mm-hmm. We're taking a trip, everyone. Get excited. Talk to you next time. All right. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engineer Your Career with Troy Bauman and Brennan Timrak. For more information about the show, visit our website at eycpodcast.com. There you can find show notes for each episode and get in touch with Troy and I. If you or someone you know are an engineer with an interesting or even not so interesting career journey and would like to be on the show, go on the website, send us a short bio, and we may just invite you to come on and share your story. And finally, if you want to show your support, please rate, review, like, or subscribe to the show on your podcast player of choice.